everybody. This is Chris. And Kathy. We wanted to take a minute to thank you all for tuning in. We appreciate every listener and are grateful for this platform. Please help us share our vision by subscribing to our show through your favorite streaming app. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Petability Podcast. Check out our ever-growing list of affiliates and sponsors. Simply go to the show notes for information and links. And be sure to use our promo code PETPOD22, that's P-E-T-P-O-D-2-2, on checkout to receive your discount from our affiliates. And now, here's a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Alon Landa, CEO of MedcoVet, and I'm a proud sponsor of PetAbility. We decided to partner with Chris and Kathy because, like them, we want to empower all pet owners who are trying to do the most for their pets. At MedcoVet, we specialize in advanced home laser therapy for pets. Laser therapy is a safe and effective treatment for common conditions like arthritis and wounds, and it relieves pain for most conditions caused by inflammation. With MedcoVet, pet owners can perform this treatment at home while receiving support from experienced clinicians. If you think your pet would benefit from healing at home, visit MedcoVet.com, and one of our clinical experts will work with you to determine if home laser therapy is the right fit for you and your pet. Tell them PetAbility sent you. Welcome to PetAbility. I'm your host, Kathy Simons. And I'm your host, Chris Cranston. Our podcast provides interviews and information to help your pets live their best lives. Hey, good afternoon, Chris. How are you doing? I am very well this fine day. What's up? Chris, I am really excited about today's show because today we're going to be speaking with certified canine nose work instructor, Michelle Ellertson, talking about the sport of canine nose work. And Chris, I will tell you that I was introduced to this sport about seven or eight years ago um, when I adopted uh, a little blind pug named Digger. The audience probably knows I've talked about him quite a bit, you know, in the past episodes, um, and when we got him, he was completely blind and he had been through, you know, the, his foster home and then he was adopted by us. And, you know, our goals for him were certainly we wanted to engage him, you know, mentally and physically, um, but also wanted to create, a, you know, a bond with him. And he was, we were having some difficulty with that. Digger was pretty shut down when we first got him. And I thought that it was really important for us to, uh, to work on that together so that we could become a team, especially since he was blind and I needed to, we really needed to be a team. And I had no idea about the power of and the life altering experience that, that we would have uh, with Digger, um, with his his you know his journey in in nose work. Um, so I'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit later. And currently, we are doing it with our newest pug, Mac, who uh, Chris has now. What is his nickname? You call him now. Bull noser. The bull noser. <laughs> That's right. He does. He's pretty good at it too. So, um, so without further ado, let me let me give you a little bit of information about our guest today. Uh, Michelle is a, as I said, a certified nose work canine nose work instructor. She is the owner, founder, and training director at the Dogs Pace in Franklin, Massachusetts. Michelle has been training dogs for eighteen years, and although her focus has been on scent training. Um, her background is in behavior modification. So this gives uh, Michelle a uh, unique perspective on engaging with all kinds of dogs and dog personalities. And in 2009, Michelle was among the first dog trainers in New England to become involved in the National Association 
of canine scent work, the NACSW. And she was involved in this new and evolving sport of canine nose work. And she's been instrumental in establishing the foundation necessary to make the sport a success in this region. And she is currently an NACSW um, certifying official. Um, and Michelle has trained in a variety of dog sports, both personally and professionally. Um, but her primary goals are in the sport of canine nose work. And this is my favorite part. Her fondness of the sport comes from the tremendous, tremendous benefit offered to all dogs, including building confidence, bonding, mental stimulation, and pure enjoyment. Michelle has also recently begun training diabetic alert dogs for her service, which is fantastic. I'd like to, I can't wait to hear more about that. And she's able to use, utilize her skills as a, a training and scent work to help these dogs or train these dogs to become diabetic alert dogs. So please welcome Michelle to the show. Welcome, Michelle. Yay. Welcome, Michelle. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to, to, ha- to chat and about my favorite topic. It's one of my favorite topics too, Michelle. <laughs> so why don't we jump right in, um, Michelle, with telling, talking about what, what is nose work or, or scent detection? And are those terms interchangeable? Is there any difference between those two terms? So I think it really depends on, on who you ask. I mean, to me, they're interchangeable. Scent work, nose work, it depends on the um, organization that you're talking about. But overall, the, the idea that the dogs are accessing their nose and using their olfactory systems to solve problems and gain confidence. It doesn't matter what you call it. That's the, you know, that, that, that's what they're doing. So uh, canine nose work is a um, copyrighted term, I believe for the NACSW, uh, but nose work in general is not um, and scent work. So you'll see people call, I think it's AKC scent work is what they use. Um, it, they're, it's the same. And when did, when did canine nose work become um, an, an organized sport? How long has that been? Gosh, so I did, I was, th- I was thinking about this on my way, on my way here, actually. I did my first NACSW trial. My first test was in 2011. I started teach or I started uh, training it in 2009. I think the first ever trial was on the West Coast in 2009. So it's been it's been organized maybe since 2007 or so. Still fairly, fairly new. new. Yeah. So yeah, 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 definitely. And when you consider the growth of the sport, I mean, it's insane. There's hundreds of trials every weekend now all across the country, and you know they have. They're getting some national footing or uh, international footing as well. Yeah, it's even hard to get into a class sometimes because there's a waiting list even to get into classes. So what was it about this specific sport, Michelle, that that drew you to this, given that you had done other, um, you know, training and sporting events with your dogs? What was the what was this that drew you out of that and into canine nose work? Yeah, I uh, I have an affinity for activities that are geared to what the dogs are genetically inclined to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you have a border collie and you do herding. I think that's cool. Like I want to learn everything that I can learn from the dog about that sport. The cool thing about nose work or scent work is that literally every dog can do it. Like it's, it's something that's ingrained in them from their very, very beginning infancy, you know, finding 
milk. They have to use that system. And then in the process of training good dogs, like good pet dog, right? Training them to walk politely, for example, we kind of teach them to turn off that system because it's not pleasant to walk a dog who's crisscrossing in front of you and sniffing and everything. So a lot of times we put a lot of pressure on the dogs kind of fitting into our world. So nose work allows us to fit into their world. And I think that's so cool that we can appreciate our dogs a little bit more from a little bit of a different angle with something that they're born doing. I I just thought that was so cool. Right. Yeah. And the fact that you said that, you know, we're trying to do something where we fit into our dog's world, because it does seem like 99.9% of the time we are trying to morph our dogs to fit into our world. So that's beautiful. Yeah, that I, I, it's so true. I mean, just doing, I mean, behavior modification work that I, that that's the world that I came from. So that's a little bit more involved anyway, because you're helping the dog live a little bit more comfortably. At least that's the goal um, with their, you know, big feelings or whatever's going on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, any of that pet dog stuff is like, sit down, stay, don't do this, don't do that. It, it, it is, it's, it's fitting them into our world. And I just, just think it's, I just think their world is so, I mean, almost underappreciated until you appreciate it until you see mm. what they can do. And oh, oh my God, the first time your dog finds a head of a Q-tip in a classroom is <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. So let's elaborate on that. So how do you actually do nose work? How do you teach this? Um, I've never done it. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy to learn from you. And, you know, what does it, what does this training look like when a person brings their dog to a nose work class? So it depends. There are a couple ways that uh, traditionally we go about it. And one of the ways is we imprint odor, teaching them the birch, clove, and anise are the three essential odors that we use. And that's what's put on the Q-tip and that's what's hidden in a space. So one of the ways to train it is to imprint the odor, tell the dog that the odor is valuable, and then gradually start making the problems harder and harder. The other way is to get them to build their ability to hunt first and then introduce them to the odor after. And that's the way that I uh, have had most success doing. Um, I like to keep this is going to get a little bit geeky, but uh, I I like to keep the dog. This is a classically conditioned sport. I like to keep the operant conditioning out of it as much as possible. So at no time do I ask the dog to do a thing for me, like a sit or a down or a, any kind of command that would involve me telling the dog what to do. Instead, I condition the dog to do it kind of on his own and then involve me in it eventually. So I start using what we call primary. Primary, very simply, is anything I don't have to tell the dog is valuable. So depending on the dog, uh, it might be a piece of meatball. It might be a piece of sausage. Uh, For my Malinois, it's her tug toy. And I will teach them to hunt for that thing. And I will introduce them to as many different components of problem solving that I can think of. So the dog is searching independently. That's important. That's what builds the confidence. If the dog is independently problem solving without the aid or influence of the handler, that builds tremendous amount of confidence in the dog that he can get there. He can do it. It He will be successful. He learns to unknit, you know, 
complicated problems like three hides and three pieces of his sausage in a space, finding one, then the next one, then the next one, call those converging odors. That's a valuable skill. So we teach them all the skills on primary because I'm not going to mess it up. Like me as the handler, I'm not going to interfere. There's nothing, the dog's not working for me at that point. He's working for his, whatever his primary is, his tug toy, his sausage, his meat, whatever, whatever he's got out there. He's working organically for that. So I am kind of faded into the distance a little bit in this process. And that's exactly where I want to be. Because again, if we want to get the confidence building and all of that out of it, and the independent problem solving, I need the dog to not worry about me. I need him to know that I'm there for him. I'm supporting him, but I can't do it for him. He's got to do it for himself. Once the dog is doing all of that, then we introduce him to uh, birch, clove, and anise, and we teach them that those three things are valuable. We do that primarily through what we call pairing, which is putting his primary reinforcer, whatever that is, his, his meatball or his tug toy. We put that with the odor and pretty much just repeat the whole series that we just did. So we start with simple problems. He gets his reinforcer. The odor just happens to be with it at this point. So the dog learns the to associate the odor with his primary thing. Once he's built that association quite significantly, we take away the primary thing and we treat him for finding the odor kind of on its own. The dog's always rewarded in this game, even in trial, the dog's rewarded um, or you're given the opportunity to reward your dog. Um, So we're able to keep that association of birch, clove, and anise means reinforcer pretty high. So again, as somebody that doesn't know anything about this, uh, you've, you've thrown out birch, clove, and anise a lot. I know. <laughs> and, and so, you know, let's elaborate on that a little bit. Why are those scents used? And I, I mean, I'm just guessing here, birch as in a birch tree and yeah. clove, of course, is like an herb or a plant. And yeah. I don't even know where anise comes from. Is that another? Anise is like uh, good and plenties. <laughs> Yeah, I know the Definitely. smell, but I don't know what the derivation is. Is that a plant? They're all plant-based smells, so I guess. It's so funny. It's so funny. That is like the why were these three odors picked is the, I, I get asked this question so many times. And, you know, I've never gotten a straight answer from that. We don't know. <laughs> that is the conundrum. <laughs> I don't know. I, I can I can assume that it's because they're, you know, safe. And yeah. they're relatively easy to find. You know, they didn't want to pick something that the organizers didn't want to pick something that was so obscure that nobody could get their hands on it. Right. Um, it's, the, yet- it's the essential oil is the is ah. what the Q-tips are scented with. So uh, we take and, and it's, it's ambient scenting. So we take a, a, jar, a canning jar, fill it with Q-tip heads, drop maybe five or six drops of the odor in there, screw the cap on, give it a shake. The odor absorbs into the cotton. And then that's what we use to plant for our dogs. Right. And and I understand what you're saying about it. It's accessible in the sense that those essential oils are available, but yet those odors are novel in a dog's everyday environment for the most part. For the most part. Yes. Yeah. So they're not getting maybe confused. I mean, if we used you know, hot dogs all the time, then, you know, when yeah. I'm making my Oscar Mayer, then the dog could think that it's doing its nose work when I'm really eating my lunch. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Or if they use, you know, uh, 
I think AKC uses cedar oil as well uh, as one of their, there's another one that they use. I think it's cedar. I could be wrong on that. I don't, I don't do AKC that much. Um, but there's, there's some of the organizations throw in other things. Um, Clove is probably the one that would be present in the dogs where it's in a lot of air fresheners. Um, can we go back when we were talking earlier too about like how, or you were mentioning how nose work, like any dog could do nose work. Let's talk a little bit about that. Nose work is open to all dogs. Um, so we're talking, you know, your, your border collies, your pugs, your Havanese, your Dalmatian. Um, do we see a variety of dogs in nose work? Yes. And that is the coolest, coolest part of it. Go to a nose work trial. You, you'll get a Yorkie one dog. And then the next dog, you'll get some working line German shepherd. And then you'll get the lab and then you'll get the cool mix, like hound cattle dog. <laughs> right. <laughs> you just get all kinds of dogs. There actually used to be a, um, an award. They, they, stop doing it. And that's, I'm not exactly clear why. Um, I think they stopped during COVID and I don't think it's coming back, but they used to have a, an award at the NW one level called the Harry award that was specifically given to a rescue dog mm-hmm. that was competing in that trial that day. And uh, just to kind of note like, Hey, this you can see how much the dog loves it or how beneficial it is for this dog or how uh, I forget the terminology that they use. It's like that nose work has enriched this dog's life. He's got a job. Yeah. (laughs) Um, One of the things I like, you know, I haven't, I haven't competed with either one of my dogs and, and and maybe I don't know if I ever will, but um, can we talk just a little bit about what competition looks like? And um, the other thing I, I think we can touch on this a little bit later is, um, boy, the, the, the camaraderie in this group is amazing. Um, so even during competition, and I don't know that we see this in any other sport with dogs, people are rooting for you. Yeah, um, I know it's great. Um, I'm friends with all the people in my class. Yeah. Um, but what I, what I'd like to know is what does a competition look like? Uh, so it depends on the organization. I can speak, uh, to a couple of them because those are the ones that I participate in. Um, NACSW is who I work for, obviously. So I know the most about that one. That is a, if you go for nose work one, two, three, and W like elite level, any of those kind of, as you work up in the levels, they're all day affairs. So you get there in the morning, you set up your camp essentially at your car (laughs) with your chair and your sunshade and whatever you need to keep your sandwich. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, And your sandwich. Exactly. (laughs) Whatever you need to keep you and your dog comfortable. And the cool part about it is that everybody's doing it. So every, you know, especially if the day's nice, like we just had a trial this last weekend and the weather was so nice and everybody was sitting out, you know, at the back of their cars and we're chatting and, you know, got to see people who you haven't seen in a long time. And you're absolutely right. Everybody there is rooting for each other. You know, we all want to do well ourselves, but it's also nice to see your classmates, your colleagues, you know, whoever else is there do well. And most of the time you've trialed with them a couple of times and you've seen either things not go well, or, you know, they've been working on something really hard and it's extra rewarding to see that work for them in the end. We had a couple of those experiences this weekend, but yeah, you, so you set up your, your stuff and, you know, have your little camp. And then depending on the level would depend on how many searches there are that day. Um, and W1 is four searches. So there would be one search in an interior space, 
one search in an exterior space, one search in a vehicle, uh, a vehicle search, which is we only search the outside of vehicles. So it's kind of, it kind of mimics what you might see like at a border crossing, like from police canines where they wrap the vehicle asking the dog to look for, you know, narcotics or something. We obviously are looking for a birch clove and anise yeah. tip, but it's the same, it's the same kind of style. Um, that we ask the dog to do. So you'll have one of those and then one container search, which is just, you know, maybe 15 to 20 boxes and they have to pick the one that has the, the, uh, the Q-tips in it. Um, the, the handler doesn't know where any of these hides are. So you and the dog are both going in kind of blind and the dog's job is to identify where the thing is. The dog's job is to tell the handler where the thing is. The handler's job is to trust their dog and to tell the judge where they think it is. So that kind of goes along. The judge gives you yes or no. Um, and then as you get up in the levels, things get a little more complex. There are more searches, um, multiple hides in each search. They do, um, they put like uh, food distractors in some of the container boxes in the upper level. So the dog has to, you know, leave the garlic bread and alert yeah. on the birch. Um, but again, the handler, as a handler, you don't know, you don't know that that's out there. Yeah. My dog passed up a, um, a breakfast burrito once for Birch, which I could not believe. (laughs) I was like, what? Um, and it just kind of shows you really that, um, the the reward is important, but the hunt I think is, is, it seems like that's more important. So you're going to get your reward, but the hunt is more important because I passed up a breakfast burrito to find (laughs) Birch. (laughs) Well, yeah, and it's a direct relationship to what the reward event is at source. It's more than just the cookie, right? It's the reward yeah. event. So how are you appreciating your dog? What is What does the event look like? One cookie, two cookie, three cookie, lots of praise, some padding, you know, all of that factors into the dog's enjoyment and enthusiasm to find the thing. The more impactful that event is, the more successful the dog will be at leaving other things. Yeah. I just want to emphasize though, that, you know, going back to this can be for every, every dog and, you know, it doesn't have to be complicated, nor does it have to lead to trials and competition. I remember I was reticent to start my dogs in agility because I thought, oh gosh, there's going to be all this pressure. And, you know, I just have, you know, pet cavaliers and, you know, they're not really known for agility. And so I didn't want to do it. But once I started, then, you know, I really could could see the benefits for all of us involved. And I think that's what's so beautiful about nose work is that, you know, you can you can do it as much or as little as you want. You can, you know, go to to classes. You don't ever have to compete. And you can do these things within your own home, right? You don't even have to put them on odor. To get the benefit out of this game, your dog could search for his sausage forever. Uh And he's still going to build the confidence. He's still going to get the mental, like, uh, uh, what what word am I looking for? The mental workout. Stimulation, yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The mental stimulation from that event. Um, It's all of that. The odor is secondary. Like, that's not what gives you the benefit of of this activity. The benefit of this activity really comes from the dog being successful, challenging, being challenged slightly, being able to overcome little obstacles. Like, you know, you know, he say he can't get directly to the the hide. 
he's looking at it, but he can't get directly there because there's something in his way. Can he figure out a way around that? That's Those are the problems that once they figure out how to solve them, they become really proud of themselves that they've done it. But you can do all of that with your pieces of meatball in your living room. You don't need, it doesn't need to be big and elaborate. Now, I will say that once you see your dog doing cool things for meatballs, sometimes the curiosity starts to, to <laughs> build as to, gee, what could my dog do? Like My dog's really good at this. <laughs> yeah, hey, my dog's really good at finding meatballs. And essentially we just make odor mean meatballs. Mm-hmm. Like it, we just transfer that. that, that that's how we, you know, tell a dog that odor is important. They smell the odor, they get a meatball, smell the odor, get a meatball over and over and over again. And when you, you talked about the mental stimulation for these dogs, like when I, when I go to class with Mac, he'll have three, maybe four runs, depending on what the class structure is that day. Mm-hmm. And mentally, it, I'm surprised at how much it, it is for him. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's uh, I don't know what the word is. I, I, I guess the problem solving and the power of his brain to, you know, that power that you have to engage in your brain to, to tra- track and hunt odor. Um, but it's, it's significant for him. Um, you know, he'll come home for about 10 minutes and run around like crazy. And then that that's it (laughs) for the rest of the afternoon. Uh, but he would would prefer that over anything else. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, I have, I mean, I have working line dogs. So my experience is a little bit, is a little bit different only because they require a lot more. Um, they need to do a lot more stuff to be happy and to be livable. Um, but my year old Malinois, if she, she, she needs some sort of mental stimulation every single day, Yeah. but I can say that I can, if I can get out maybe two searches that takes the edge off, mm-hmm. like that's, that's done for the day, which how easy is that? <laughs> right. And it's fun and it's fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think this is something that Kathy and I always try to emphasize, uh, in the line of work that we do as far as being physical rehabbers. You know, many people, I just had a, a new client this past weekend that dog has a, a knee injury and, you know, both the owners are like, man, he, he needs at least two hours of, of exercise. You know, he needs to be off leash in the woods. He needs to run and chase. And, and this is contraindicated in terms of, you know, protecting his knee joint from, from further injury and they're trying to avoid surgery and so forth. And my line is always that mental stimulation and training will trump physical exercise almost 100% of the time. I mean, I think that people are shocked at how little mental stimulation and brain games will tire them out, um, you know, versus the hours that it may take to tire them out physically. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Yep. And I can't, you know... We have, um, you know, basic obedience classes come through and every now and again, there will be a particular dog who you can just tell needs a little bit more. Like they're not, and the poor, the poor owners are, we walk them, we walk them for two hours every day and I don't know what else we can do. And he's never satisfied and he's getting into trouble and causing mischief and getting into the trash and doing all this and the minute, you know, you show them this, the, this simple game, I, I, I start with um, just open like Amazon boxes in a, in a pile and I hide the meatballs throughout the, uh, the pile of boxes. 
And once you show them that it's, it's like a relief for them that they have this thing that they can now do with their dog that doesn't take a whole lot of time, right? It gets them the end result of having this, you know, at least content yeah. Yeah. <laughs> creature to live with life changing for everyone, you know, cause we're always strapped for time. Uh, but we want to, you know, do, do right by our dogs. So how can we make that, you know, the most efficient and effective? Right. And, you know, this is certainly a means to an end. Yes. So let's circle back a little bit to like professional dogs. I happen to be reading a book right now that I picked up at one of those little free libraries when I was walking my dog in the neighborhood. And it chronicles the journey of a Marine who was one of the first dog handlers in the United States to use the dog for searching out specifically IEDs in Iraq. So I didn't know until I started reading this book that military dogs were not used for this purpose until the Iraq war and then subsequently in Afghanistan. So it's a fascinating read, you know, about their relationship, you know, the bonding and how the, you know, this was a a soul Marine and he's immersed with uh, a bunch of army guys, soldiers. And at first they're a little distrusting, right? They don't want the dog to go first and, you know, is this dog really going to keep us safe? Is he going to be able to, you know, find this bomb? And before long, this dog proves herself and, you know, they're all, you know, team canine. So talk a little bit about how we use nose work, scent work professionally in, you know, we've touched on police, military work, but also, you know, in medical situations, search and rescue, we're on the heels of of the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and we know how many dog teams were sent uh, to to the um, the disaster site, and uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, didn't uh, find anything. But uh, talk about that a little bit, and then how that emotionally can affect the dog or dog handler team. Yeah, okay, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a big. That's a big. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I just we, okay. you know, we're talking about like you know, classes and training and so forth. But I also want our audience to appreciate that, that there are people spending, you know, countless hours, months, years training dogs because they have this superhuman, literally superhuman ability to smell and how we're utilizing them in different facets, which I've alluded to. But maybe, Michelle, you can talk a little bit about your, your recently training dogs to help with uh, diabetes, right? Yes. Yeah. So the, uh, you know, I know the dogs are amazing. And I think that we're discovering every single day just a little bit more about how amazing the, their ability to sort out odors is and how minute those odors could possibly be for the dog to still pick them up and still identify them as, you know, to the dog, it's valuable, right? Because every time the dog finds something that they've been trained for, they get a reinforcer of some sort. Um, I think that there was an increase. 
I know more about private sector stuff than um, military, only because that's who, like my my colleagues work in private sector now um, and are not currently working with the military. But from my understanding, it's, you know, instead of putting the dogs on birch, clover, anise, they're putting the dogs on pieces of explosives. So different um, components of an IUD is what the dog would be trained on. And then he would alert on those particular things they use. They're using dogs more and more um, for a variety of reasons, but one of them is how, how reliable they can be. And, you know, my work, um, the diabetic alert stuff is eternally fascinating to me. And I, I wish I had more time to do more of it um, because I love it. But essentially with diabetic alert dogs, the dogs are alerting on the ketones in the, um, in the body that change with blood sugar changes. So we train them on my favorite is saliva, um, just because it's more, um, uh, it's more clean than any other kind, any other place we could get odor from, but there's an odor that's emitted when blood sugars start to change, either drop or raise. Uh, and we train the dogs to identify the movement of the, of that, uh, that odor. And then they, they, we train them to do something when they detect it. So we train them to, they notice the movement in the odor and they nudge their handler. They'll nose poke them until they pay attention. Um, sometimes we train them to go get the testing kit. They notice the the blood sugar change or the ketone change and the odor and they'll go and they'll retrieve the, uh, their handler's blood testing kit to insist that they do it right then. Wow. Um, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating. fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's fascinating that they can do that. Like that, that's something that it takes a really keen dog, not all dogs. So I need to say this to you, not all dogs can or should be service dogs. Right. And right. that's a, that's a conversation that I have more often than not, because your, you know, lovely companion dog may not be suited for that work. Mm-hmm. And that that's important. It, it, it's important that the work, even the military work, all that, like these dogs are specifically selected, not because of their ability to scent, but because their personality type. Right. So with a diabetic alert dog, I need a dog to pick up on the odor movement. I need him to alert to the handler and I need him to not dismiss it when the handler doesn't listen. Because a lot of times with um, our diabetic clients, when their blood sugars start to drop, their cognitive functions also drop. So they're not, they're not, yeah, they're not always completely there. So the dog needs to have the tenacity to kind of nudge, really push if they're not being recognized. So that's what I mean. Like, like my shepherd would not be a very good service dog in that capacity. Mm-hmm. He would, he would crumble if I told him to go away. Mm. So, you know, when we look for dogs for service work in any capacity, we have to look at uh, the genetics of that dog and the overall temperament of that dog they're amazing and all dogs can do it, but the temperament to be tenacious about it differs. Well, and, and I think that's why, 
you know, some of these uh, professionals are able to go into rescue settings, you know, and shelters and such and select a dog to train up because they're recognizing that temperament that you're describing, Michelle. It is way, yes, absolutely. There's a, I have a colleague who works um, ecological detection in California and one of her, that's what she does. She goes, she visits, she visits shelters all the time and pretty much takes a tennis ball and walks up and down the, the kennels and bounces the tennis ball. And the dog who's, you know, essentially throwing himself off the chain link to get to the tennis ball is the one that she takes. And, and you just said ecological? Yeah, yeah. What, what does that mean? So she has um, a number of dogs who are trained on a variety of things. And they're, uh, it depends. They're either endangered species or um, invasive species. So she, and in California, they have, um, I think most of her job, most of her work is, um, in like the, the, they have huge windmill fields, like when, you know, windmills, um, and they're just fields and fields of them. So when they're going to put up a new one or a new solar field or something like that, they have to make sure there's no endangered species in that area. So they send out the dogs mm, yeah. for, for green energy. I think I saw something on a program recently where a dog was used to sniff out like a fungus or something like that, that was actually below ground and, and was spreading, but it wasn't easily visible to the human eye to know where it was going and tracking. And, Mm -hmm. and like you said, things that could be invasive or detrimental, um, you know, to our environment as well. Yeah. Yeah. So the guy, she, I'm, I'm pretty, I think at this point she works on government, um, uh, oh, what's it called? Um, contracts. So they'll send her out to clear an area of whatever she trains the dog on the thing. Cause it's, a, there's a variety of different things that, that they need. So she'll train the dog on the thing, get the dog certified and then go out and clear vast areas of this thing much more efficiently than a, you know, a group of scientists walking out with their eyeballs peeled for, you know, kit fox scat or something. Right, right. And there's and- a, there's there are dogs who are doing um, whale pod tracking off of oh. the bow of <laughs> off of the bow of boats, and they sent out the whale scat and they track the pods that way. Wow. Can you imagine how many converging odors must be going <laughs> through their nose at, at any given time. And they're able to just pick out this one specific smell is amazing. It's, it's amazing. Well, we, we do that. So every time you feed your dog for birch, clover, anise, you're conditioning those scent receptors to pay attention to that. Yeah. As opposed to everything else in the ambient environment. Yeah. And how do you cut that out? I, I can't even imagine what it'd be like to live your life through uh, an olfactory rather versus, you know, how humans are through vision. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It must be, yeah, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> so Kathy knows this about me, Michelle. I love a good statistic. She does. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to rattle off some things here to just kind of reinforce exactly what we're talking about. So um, you know, again, on the medical side, other things that I know dogs can detect are, are when a seizure may be imminent. Yes. Um, cancer cells, oftentimes well before any medical test shows that there's cancer present. 
And I forget like how many feet below ground or underwater, you know, dogs can smell for a specific odor. I mean, it's uncanny, but this is, this is why they're so amazing. So the dog's sense of smell is up to 100,000 times greater than our human ability. And our puny little 5 million scent receptors in the nose is compared to dogs that have 300 million. Dogs also have around 40% more of their brain devoted to the sense of smell than humans do. And they have an area of the brain that's devoted to assimilating scent, and it's called the olfactory bulbs. And these are four times larger than in the human brain. So it stands to reason that dogs are believed to smell up to 100 times better than humans. I think that's just incredible. That's a lot of nose power. Yes. (laughs) And I have a poor sense of smell, so I'm sure that dogs can probably smell 200 times better than I can. They also have a, a little organ on the roof of their mouth called the uh, varmer nasal organ. Yes. Or the Jacobson's organ. And, and that also helps them process smell. So they can take in. Have you ever seen your dog or you see this with cats sometimes? They'll take in a scent and then you'll see them standing there with their mouth open. Yep. And they're just letting that hit that roof of their mouth. And 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 I think it specifically helps them with, with detecting pheromones, but um, but it enhances their ability. One of the ways that uh, working dogs, uh, you know, military police dogs are imprinted with odor is through a retrieval system. So you take a, um, I did it with my Malinois, you take a towel or something, put the odor in the middle of the towel, wrap the towel, tape the towel at the ends and let the dog like chase, tug, carry because the Jacobson gland is right at the like roof of the mouth at the back of the mouth right there. So when they carry that thing in their in their mouth, they're taking in all of that odor because it's it's right there. That's one of the one of the ways that it differs between the way that we do police military work versus canine nose work. Can uh, can we can we circle back a little bit about the benefits of um, canine nose work? Because I'm always um, I'm always interested in the in the emotional lives of animals, and given the experience I had with with Digger, uh, the benefits were um, they were amazing, and I I I never experienced something I think that was so powerful for him in in his in his life to change the way he to make his life better. Basically, his quality of life was was extremely enhanced by by doing uh, nose work. Um, and like I said, you know, we were building on his confidence and building on his, um, you know, building on our bonding and building on our teamwork. But now, you know, there were other things that happened that I started to notice that I think were because of this foundation of nose work, that his vet visits were going better. You know, he was more compliant with vet visits. He was better with his training, more compliant with his training. He also now became a dog, um, a blind dog who now liked new adventures. Um, and so the the confidence was just um, it was outstanding, and I oftentimes recommend it for a lot of other clients. I have that of blind dogs as well because of the outcome that I had with my dog, and it was just it was a pure you know joy for me to watch him uh, come out and evolve and be the guy who he really was, or be the guy that he could be, and have this fantastic you know existence without vision. Yeah. 
So what, what are the, what are other benefits? I probably talked about just three right there, but yeah, but, <laughs> I think I just covered them all, but um, maybe you can, do you have, maybe you can tell us a story that you, that that's happened to you with a, with the client's dog. Maybe there's something that you can see that this dog developed from one, one personality or one way of being to being a confident, outgoing, well-behaved dog. Have you seen that? Uh, one that sticks in my mind is it was a, a golden retriever client and she was older, um, had pretty much to my assumption, lived the majority of her days, not being comfortable away from home. Mm. Like she just, she was really anxious in any other environment that was not home. So her, uh, her owner had done nose work with her other dog because she was more outgoing and more confident and, you know, she had fun with her. And she asked me if we could try it with Allie, this dog. I was like, yeah, sure. You just have to be patient. You just can't push it. And she didn't. And Allie went from not being able to move in the building because she came here for lessons. She went from not being able to move in the building to doing full searches in the building, on the vehicles, in exteriors, everything. Is she still aware? She's very aware of her environment, but you can see her consciously make decisions to say, I'm not going to die. I'm I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. And she, she does it. And she, when she gets there to the end, she's so proud of herself. I'd be proud of her too. Like the, yeah. the, 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 she's not terribly food motivated either. So that's another challenge, but the cookie is the, is the side note. The mm. fact that she did it, it's, it's impressive. Right? It means more that. to her. Yeah. And that's, you know, if people are willing to have the patience, their dogs can really go far. It, mm-hmm. Then this dog is not, she may never, she's never going to compete. That, that was never the goal. The goal was just, can we get her to a place where she didn't feel so stifled in when she had to go to the vet's office, when she had to go to the groomer, when she had to go on a walk around her neighborhood. Like these are not things that she could do before. And and Chris and I, almost every podcast, we talk about um, dogs and and their confidence and why we should be concerned with our dog's confidence. And we'll say it probably in almost every episode it's a quality of life issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want this dog to be frightened to leave the home. I want her to be able to go to the groomer. I want her to have some confidence. And so I think, I mean, really you've, in, you've increased this dog's quality of life as you know, Digger had an increase in quality of life with his, with those work as well. So that's, that's a fantastic end, end goal. <laughs> yeah. Ex- expanded their world. So, so much. Right. Right. And I, I have to say, you know, I, I, in, in our experience with Digger, I, I would have to, you know, give a, a lot of kudos to his nose work and trainer, nose work trainer, because um, she gave him every opportunity to um, engage just like all the other dogs that were in class. And if you saw the class, you'd probably laugh a little bit because it was like, you know, German Shepherd, German Shepherd, Beagle, you know, chubby, blind pug, blind pug. <laughs> Sorry. But he was given the same opportunities and the same amount of time and the same amount of patience that every other dog was, even though we knew he wasn't going to compete. Um, but it was important enough for his instructor to give him the same amount of energy and time that she gave to every other every other dog. So he was out there doing dog stuff, you know, because he's a dog, yeah. not a blind dog, just a dog doing dog stuff. Um, and to see him work 
um, without vision is incredible. And sometimes um, he'd come off the course and, and he'd give like high fives because he was a high, that's the kind of dog he was like high fives. Um, but his, you know, when people cheered for him, oh, it was like fuel. He just loved it. He loved it. <laughs> well, and I think you've both shared stories, um, you know, you with Digger, Kathy and Michelle with the, the older golden where through nose work, mm-hmm. uh, it has carried over to many, many aspects of these dogs' lives. Right. Um, it's not just, you know, when they are in that nose work environment, you know, by you've, you've kind of changed their, their mindset. Right. Right. And that's kind of a, a good segue to another thing that, that we talk about many times, Michelle is, is Kathy and I recommend nose type games to a lot of our clients for their dogs, because maybe they are older. Maybe they are physically impacted, differently abled in some way. Uh, you know, the dog may be in a wheelchair. The dog may be missing a limb. Uh, the dog may be severely arthritic, but they can still do nose work. It's low impact. And just as we said, for all of those reasons, so beneficial. Oh, and it encourages movement too. So for us as rehabbers, we're like, if you have a dog that's sniffing, reaching, stabilizing, um, you know, all of those things are Burning. encouraging movement. Exactly. They're encouraging movement. And so that's where, you know, we're all about the movement. <laughs> you know, we, we all have a, uh, a mutual friend and um, her dog is in a wheelchair and she'll do some nose work stuff with her dog uh, in the yard. And, and she loves it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and being in a wheelchair really hasn't um, made it, you know, made it not possible for her to do sniffing. She can still sniff, you know, <laughs> she needs a mobility aid, but she's still a good nose work dog. <laughs> Is there anything else in closing, Michelle, that you would like to to share, leave our audience with in terms of, you know, a pearl of information, a plug for nose work, another success story? Lay it on us. I just think, in my very humble opinion, that everybody should do nose work with their dogs. I, I, I just think it's as vital as your neighborhood walk at the end of the day or whatever routine you do with your dog to make sure they get their physical exercise. I think they also need to do something with their brains. So let me ask you this, you know, I'm from Iowa and, you know, sometimes I describe the quote crazy work that I'm doing and, (laughs) you know, people just don't, um, they may have a different mentality around, around their pets or don't even understand or have access to the things that are potentially available to dogs. You know, we're very privileged here in new England to have, you know, different kinds of dog sports and training centers and so forth. So, you know, for my mom back in Iowa, how, how could she do nose work, you know, for, for her dog? Could it uh, simply be even scattering treats out in the yard and make him forage for treats? Is that a form of nose work in the sense they're using their sense of smell to find those treats and getting reward for that? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of my favorite enriching enrichment activities for my dogs when it's winter time and there's snow all over the place and I can't swim them or hike them or do anything like that is to take a handful of kibble and chuck it into the snow and let them bury themselves until they find all the pieces. That's incredibly 
enriching mentally for them. Yeah. And I like the putting a treat or, or the kibble, as you say, um, you know, in a blanket, you know, you kind of mentioned something mm-hmm. to that effect in training earlier, you know, but letting them dig for it and find, you know, try to find it and problem solve and, and get that, that treat. Um, you know, I think a lot of the uh, enrichment toys are scent driven, you know, mm-hmm. they're trying to, to get the treat from under the flap or spin the object um, to, to find whatever it is. So don't be um, a naysayer, I guess, out there. You know, I think it's something that, that anybody can do and you just have to be creative um, and, and it becomes nose work and enriching. Right. No, you have a dog, you have a dog who loves his ball, put him in. I do this with uh, my Malinois all the time. I'll put her in the kitchen, go out on the deck, chuck her ball somewhere, wait a couple minutes, release her to go find it. She has to hunt for her ball through the yard. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a that's good point, point too, that it doesn't always have to be food because our last show that, uh, that we, we published or recent show that we published was on pet obesity. <laughs> and so it can be that toy, you know, you have to figure out what works for your, your pet. Oh, and that makes me think of another thing, Michelle. Uh, you, you said like the, the dog signals, can you describe what some of those signals look like? I, I meant to touch on that earlier, but you How do we know found, when they found the scent? Uh, yeah. So um, there are, we call them trained indicators, which could be any behavior that you tell the dog you want when they found the thing, like a sit or a down or a nose touch on target or a look back at me. Um, I like more natural indicators uh, because they're more honest and they're less operant. And I've already talked about how I like to stay away from the operant world in this. Um, so for my dog, it's, he finds it, it's so valuable to him. And he's so um, ingrained with this expectation that I'm going to come feed him for it, that he plants himself and he will not leave it until I come feed him or release mm-hmm. him from it. So that's what I like to, to condition is the dog kind of owning the hide. I call it possession. And the handler just learns to read that. It generally looks like a look back if you if you didn't know what you were looking for. So just like the reward could be food or it could be a toy, a ball, a sock. Also, this alert, this signal can look different for different dogs. And it's up to us to your one of your original points to kind of figure out and, and immerse ourselves in the dog's world as to what that is and then recognize that and reinforce it. Exactly different for different dogs. Oh, fascinating. Right, Kathy? I know. And I'm like super pumped because I got nose work class tonight. Now I'm like super, <laughs> like super pumped for nose work class tonight. <laughs> so thank you, Michelle. Um, I agree. I think that everybody should try some type of nose work, scent detection, foraging, hunting games with their dogs. Um, it's fantastic for, for, you know, mental stimulation and physical stimulation. So thank you for sharing all that with us today really enjoyed uh, having listening to what you had to say about it. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. Michelle, before you go, can you tell our audience where can they find you? Yes. Uh, so they can find us online. We're at thedogspace.net. Um, and all of our information is there. There's a nice blurb about what nose work is in case you wanted to look into that a little bit more and some other resources. Fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you. We'll put that in our show notes so people can find you. 
Thank you. All right. Thank you. Very good. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Facebook or on Instagram at Petability Podcast. For more information about Kathy's books and living with blind dogs, please go to EnableYourPet.com. Thank you and please tune in next time.